0: Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, aka rabbi. At this point in the story, the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants are paralyzed. There is no clear way forward. Peace with the Romans will not happen, war with the Romans will not happen. teshuva, repentance, within the Jewish people, will not happen. Rav Tzadok's fasts will not help. Something has to move forward at this point. Something has to budge. So at this point, we're told, Abba Sikra, Reish Bar a man named Abba Sikra, the name itself might actually mean head bandit or head murderer, but, the Gemara tells us that he's a Resh Barioni. He's the leader of the thugs of Yerushalayim. He happens to be Bard Achte, the Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. He happens to be the nephew, the son of the sister of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, he sent word to him and he said, Ta the Gabai, come to me secretly. Come to me without anyone else knowing. He came. Amarle ad imat avditu haki alma He said, "Until when are you going to act this way, such that people will die from famine?" Amarle He said, "What can I do? iamina If I say anything to them, they will kill me." The implication here is that this man, the head of the bandits, Sikra, he's not even running the show. He's not steering the ship either. The guidance, the direction seems to be determined by the rest of the thugs, not even the leadership. This is scary, obviously. This is terrifying. Because now we know that no one's listening to leadership or to guidance. Everyone is deeply dug into their points of view, particularly and most dangerously the thugs of Yerushalayim. They are committed to seeing this out. Nothing can stop them. And they are the strongest. They apparently have the weapons. They're willing to kill people. This is terrifying. Of course, it's not that dissimilar from the situation with the rabbis at this point. The leadership of the rabbis seems to be determined by a relatively minor rabbi by the name of Rev. Zahara ben Avkulas, who is steering the opinions and the responses of the rabbis and doesn't seem that the rabbinic community is open to suggestion from intelligent guidance, from wise and inspired leadership, just like the thugs are not open to to guidance by their own potentially inspired leadership this again is its own ill it's its own problem when we have situations in which the people who are at least theoretically supposed to be guiding a particular community have no ability or willingness to guide the community and find themselves instead subject to the deep visceral intuitive whims or unprocessed ideas of that community. In a sense, we're reminded of the kingship of Sha'ul, the first king of the Jewish people. At a certain point early on in his kingship, Sha'ul is approached by Shmuel, the prophet, and told that God wants Sha'ul, the king, to fight the tribe of Amalek, and he wants Sha'ul to kill Everyone in the tribe of Amalek, man, woman, and child, as well as animals. Setting aside the question of genocide and how that fits into the Torah's view of what should happen in the world, for the sake of this conversation, know that Shaul is the king and he is given a very particular order by God through God's prophet, Shmuel. Shaul goes and makes battle with Amalek and is successful, and yet, perhaps inexplicably, he leaves the king, Agag, alive, and he also leaves some animals alive. That night, God comes to Shmuel and says, Shmuel, I regret that I made Shaul the king. He has deviated from my command. Shmuel goes to see Shaul the next day. Shaul comes out triumphant and says, I did the will of God. And Shmuel says, then what is the sound of animals that I hear? Shaul says, oh, that... Well, the people decide that they wanted to bring these animals as sacrifices to your God, he says to Shmuel, so I left them alive. Shmuel, the prophet, at that point, reminds Shaul, Halo Im katon Behold, even if you are small in your own eyes, rosh shivte yisrael You are the head of the tribes of Israel. Vayim Adonai the al Israel, and God has anointed you as a king upon the Jewish people. Meaning, your role here is as a leader. A leader must lead. A leader is not supposed to favor the suggestions of the people over the will and command of God. When the leadership is unable to lead, we know that we are in trouble. And Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai senses this as well. So he says, Amarle, Khazili Chazi li takanta ledidi. Find for me a fixing, a rectification for me, some way, some way to address this situation. The ipuk, such that I can get out. Efshar dahave hatzalah porta. Perhaps, or it is possible that there will be a small Salvation. Similarly, in another version of the story that appears in Midrash, Eicha, at this moment, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai says, Kol milta," which the commentaries say means the whole essence of the matter, the crux of the biscuit. Nipukuli mehacha. I have to get out of here. This is now the birth of Plan C. Plan A, we can do tshuva. Plan B, some righteous people perhaps can make this fixing for us. Plan C starts now. I see the situation. Nothing grandiose is going to happen. The only thing that's going to happen, the only way that there could be a hatsala Porta, a small salvation, a small fixing, is if I get out of here. A hatsala Porta. A small salvation. This is not going to seem like a huge victory. This is not going to look like the Hanukkah story, and it's not going to look like the Purim story, and it's not going to look like the Egypt story. In fact, the victory that's about to happen is going to be so small that it might not even seem like a victory. It might seem like a failure, like a concession, like a side point. And yet, what's about to happen is literally going to change the face of how Jewish life is done forever. What's about to happen is no less than the transition from temple Judaism to decentralized synagogue and home life Judaism, from sacrifices and offerings to prayer, with an emphasis on Torah learning and personal avodot, personal practices and rituals. It seems like a failure because he fails to save the temple and he fails to save Jerusalem, as it were. But in so doing, he succeeds in saving the Jewish people. Hatzalah Porta, a small salvation. The ability to reduce the scope of the intended results of an action all the way down to one point. One tiny goal that seems so small as to be insignificant, but what makes it so impacting is that it is the right goal for that moment. It is the right intention to have for that moment. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai will successfully identify the fulcrum the pivot point, exact pivot point at which the trajectory of Jewish history will turn from what it has been until now to what it will become in the future. He has identified that. He asks for no more than that, as we will see, and in so doing shows such prescience, such brilliance, such a capacity to read the writing on the wall, such an ability to understand where the Jewish people are going. And because what he asks for and what he does seems so small, he's not denied. No one stands in the way of what he's doing. Not the other rabbis, not the barioni, not anybody. He knows exactly what needs to be done. And because of that, he's able to do it and he's able to accomplish it. How I that we should know at key moments whether or not we can accomplish our greatest and grandest goals, and whether or not this is a situation in which the only outcome we can really hope for is a hatsala Porta, is a small salvation. And Halavai, that we should know what that is, and that we should be able to identify and to grab onto and to commit to and to devote ourselves to that one thing which might seem so small as to be irrelevant, but actually might represent the cornerstone of the next phase of our own lives, the lives of our community, the lives of our nation. Anyway, the nature of the salvation that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is able to achieve at that moment will not be known for some time, even in this story. All we have right now is a real sense from him that he knows that he's got it and he trusts himself that getting himself out of Yerushalayim is a value and is worth pushing for and he can trust his own intuition and his ability to name, to achieve, to accomplish that Hatsala Porta, that little salvation that he knows will be the cornerstone of the next period of the lives of the Jewish people. And we must celebrate his confidence in the context of people like Rev Zaharib and Avkulas, who have no confidence, no confidence in themselves, no confidence in their ability to name this moment to figure out what needs to happen next. But first he needs to get out. He knows he's got to, but he's still got to get out of the city. So he says to the man his nephew, Bar Sikra, get me out of here. Amarle, he said to him, Nikit State about yourself that you're sick. Let everyone know that you're ailing. Kuli alama Vli and let everyone come and ask about you, ask about how you're doing. it sarya." gabach. Bring something foul, something that smells bad, and put it by you. And then people will say that you're dead. aylubach tamidach, and let your students go in to see you. bach inish and let no one else come in to see you. De lo the ruchshanbach the Kalilat lest they feel that you are light of weight. yade de chia mimita, because everyone knows that a person who is alive is lighter than a person who is deceased. Avid they did that. Two of his main students, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Hoshua, came in, one on each side, to take him out. Kimatu laPidcha when they got to the gate. Ba'u laMidkarei, the guards of the gate wanted to stab him, ostensibly to make sure he's dead. Amarlehu, he said to them. We don't know who he is. Yomru Rabban and they'll say you're stabbing their rabbi. Maybe this is a delicate political situation and if you go stabbing dead rabbis, people will be upset and rebel. the They wanted to push him or shove him to see if he would react. He said to them, then they'll say that you're pushing their rabbi. They opened the gate. Baba. They opened the gate. And he went out. I have to admit, my imagination at this point in this story always goes towards wondering what it would be like to fake your own death what would it be like if you started a rumor or someone started a rumor right now that you weren't well and you let that rumor grow eventually you allowed people to believe that you were deceased and then for all intents and purposes were buried and you were just gone One possible advantage of that, and I'm really not recommending doing this, but you could imagine one possible advantage of this is that you could completely start over. You could start your life without any of the projections that other people have on you about who you are and what you're capable of. This is not fake your own death, go to your own funeral to find out what people actually think-about-you level. This is completely leave behind every aspect of your old identity. No turning back. Witness protection level change. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai is going to need this extent and this level of leaving behind his old identity and his old relationships because he is going to do some things which are going to be shocking. He's going to make some decisions on behalf of the Jewish people that will be mocked and ridiculed by some of the greatest rabbis of the generation. And you can't do that if you're still posting on Facebook and wondering whether your friends Will give you some likes or not. This requires total freedom from the past. And that's what he gets. It is interesting to note that some people have a practice on Tisha B'Av, on the ninth of Av, the fast day, to imagine their own deaths. I once had the honor of going through a ritual of sorts with Rabbi. Henochtob Hoffman, in which he had us imagining, digging our own graves and laying down in them. And as we did, noticing those layers of wanting to be remembered, wanting to be connected, which of course are such natural human emotions. But at the same time, it's those very memories and those very connections that would keep a person connected to the past and on a day like Tisha B'Av, on the ninth of Av, amidst the grieving and amidst the frustration and the destruction, that this story of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, this story of Hatsalaporta, of a small salvation, of the tiniest part, the most essential part of the Jewish people, as expressed in this one person makes it out, that this level of destruction and decomposition, and death, and disintegration is required in order to allow that one piece to leave unscathed, that one piece which contains within it the DNA of the next period, of the next phase of personal, communal, and national, and cosmic life, that that would become part of the theme of Tisha B'Av, part of the meditation of Tisha B'Av, to allow again, amidst this grief to allow what must die to die, what must be forgotten to be forgotten, what must be disengaged from to be disengaged from, in order to allow that one piece, that one little fragment, which contains the essential element, to allow that to go forth and to leave unfettered into the next phase. It's a powerful set of considerations to explore on Tisha B'Av to find space in our own thinking for that type of meditation. A person could spend part of the day of Tisha B'Av considering the work Rabbi Nachman describes in Azamra as the good points. How do I find the point in me which is actually really genuinely, deeply, absolutely good? And the fact is that this one point is going to be smaller than I would hope. I won't be able to look at my entire CV, so to speak, all the accomplishments that I have broadly and say everything I've done here is good. But I might perhaps be able to do some work of allowing old temples to be destroyed, to allow old structures to fall as I zero in on this one thing, this one element, this one action this one capacity, this one skill, this one trait that I believe contains the essence of who I am and what I'm doing and what I'm trying to accomplish here in the w- in the world, and for the sake of this one thing, this Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai element, I will allow all those old structures to fall away and to be buried. That's a powerful meditation and a powerful contemplation that we can take on, on Tisha B'Av, how I all the more so, if we could do this as a community, if we could look at such questions as a community and say, what's working and what's not working? Let's imagine that this is the day when we pivot with our community, when we allow ourselves to look closely and honestly and say, these are the things that are not working. What would it be like to let those go? Well, then what are we? Why do we exist? That's a really good question. Let's really bear down together as a community and try to find and try to really clarify and really isolate this one piece that we feel contains the DNA of what we want to accomplish, of what we want to be, what we want to do as a community and embrace that and celebrate that and put all our eggs in that basket and allow ourselves to fully and deeply commit to that one piece and in exchange to allow all the old stuff, all the disintegration, all the decaying, Elements of our former iterations to fall away, and to be buried. Halabai. As an addendum, I want to call attention for the moment to the two people who accompanied Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's coffin out of the city of Yerushalayim. They were Rab- Rabbi Eliezer, also known as Rabbi Eliezer ben Horcanus, and Rabbi Hoshua. In the Talmud, we are told that one was on one side and one was on the other. And in the version in the Midrash Echa, Rabbi Eliezer is in the front and Rabbi Hoshua is in the rear. I'm very interested in the configuration of people at key ritual, mystical, powerful, transitional moments. For example, when Yaakov Avinu, when Yaakov died in Egypt and had his sons bring him to Maratha Machpelah, to the ancestral burial site in Machpelah, he configured his sons around the coffin in a very particular way. Particularly, he configured them around his coffin the way they would ultimately configure themselves around the Mishkan in the wilderness, according to their flags, three on each side. Similarly, although not immediately concerning death, Rabban, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the Zohar would often configure the people in the room with him in particular ways, in particular directions, meaning he would sit his son over here, and Rabbi Abba would sit over there, and Rabbi Chia over there, who'd put them in particular places. Though I have not been blessed with insight into what it would mean to have Rebbe Eliezer in the front and Rebbe Hoshua in the rear, I do think it worthwhile to point out who these people were. Perhaps the most famous story in which Rebbe Hoshua and Rebbe Eliezer interact is the story of the Tanur of Akhnai. Mm-hmm. W- the rabbis were debating whether or not a particular oven was of one piece or of several pieces, and this would have ramifications in terms of whether or not the entire oven would become tamay if a part of the oven had come in contact with something which could convey that tuma and rabbi eliezer insisted on his ruling that it was in fact tahor and that the pieces were in fact separate from each other and he insisted so much that he stepped out of the modality at that time, which is a modality of debate. And he started to invoke natural miracle phenomena to happen to prove that he was right. He said, if I'm right, let this carob tree uproot itself. If I'm right, let this river start flowing backwards. If I'm right, let the walls of the house of learning start to fall. And each time, he was refuted by none other than Rabbi Hoshua, the other person who was accompanying Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's coffin out of Yerushalayim. Rabbi Hoshua kept insisting, this is not how we decide halacha." Finally, Rabbi Eliezer said, if I'm right, then let Hashem prove it, or let a voice come out of heaven and prove that I'm right. And a voice came out of heaven and said, he's right. And Rabbi Rabbi Hoshua retorted with his now famous response, it is not in heaven. This is not how we decide Torah. It's interesting that these two people who were at the center of a very important and very well-known debate about how we figure out what to do Jewishly, that those two people would be accompaniment for Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's coffin as he left Yerushalayim. Because this story, in some ways, is about that very question. This story, going all the way back to Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkula's, And the rabbis trying to figure out, how much in heaven is it? How much are we supposed to take into account something which is beyond reason or rational thought when trying to figure out how we move the project of Torah forward? Or, to look at the story on another axis, how much do we take the passionate opinion of one person versus the collective wisdom of the group into account when trying to figure out how to move the Jewish project forward? Rabbi Eliezer Ben Horkunus invokes his own personal power and charisma as a way of indicating that he's right. He seems to be conveying the importance of an individual, that sometimes an individual is so convinced of their rightness that they do need to step outside of debate, and they do need to step outside the proprietary formats and formalities that would allow for that opinion to be conversed and conveyed, and argued with, with his peers, and he goes beyond that. That is certainly a piece of our story, because we saw people who could not muster enough, or really even any personal power, in order to push the debate forward. The fact of Rabbi Zahar ibn Avkulas, and also all the rabbis who sat in the room with him, and also the rabbis who were in Yerushalayim, and talking to the Baryanim No one seemed to have the capacity to push the project forward until Rabbi Yochanan ben came along and said, I have it. I know what it is. I have to get out of here because I have a sense that what I know and what I see and what I know that I need to do, this actually does deserve to be at the top of all other considerations. So he musters that personal power. And that personal power may in some way be reflected in Rabbi Eliezer, perhaps even in a distorted way. At the same time, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's vision is not a vision of a charismatic, divinely inspired, pseudo-prophetic monarchy of sorts. Rather, his ultimate goal is to build Yavne. His His goal is to build an academy where the rabbis can debate and figure out the future of the Jewish people and where the project needs to go. So in this sense, Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai represents the very process of reasonable conversation and debate, question and answer, communal decision-making in order to be able to move the Jewish project forward. So somehow, Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai balances both of these approaches. On one hand, he knows that this is his moment. He knows that there are times when a person might need to push through, But he knows that the motive or the reason for pushing through is not ultimately for oneself and for one's own power but rather for the sake of the ideal approach or the ideal method of navigating the future and so a person might need to stand up at some moment and really assert that they might need to assert that vision they might need to assert themselves in the context of other people who are not willing to take on that vision and push through, but again, not for their own sake, not for the sake of their own power, but rather for the sake of the ultimate benefit of the entire community. So I think it's amazing that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is accompanied by these two people as he leaves, these two essences, these two approaches, which would need to be balanced. And if they are not, we, as we see later on, things go out of control. Rabbi Eliezer asserts himself too hard, ultimately is excommunicated. This is painful. Rabbi Hoshua, in another amazing story in the Talmud, actually concedes. He actually, uh, at a key moment, agrees not to push his own view and his own agenda in terms of when a particular new month will be established. And he concedes to the person who is the Rosh Yeshiva, the person who is the head of the Council of Rabbis, Raman Gamliel, he concedes to him, and agrees that even though Rabbi Yoshua is sure that he's right, he ultimately allows for himself to, to be guided by the ruling of the majority, even at the expense of his own sense of rightness. As you can see, there's major issues at play here. There are major, major concerns, not just about particular ingredients of the future of the Jewish people, but the very fabric of what will guide them, the very principles that will guide how they make decisions moving forward. It's a big moment. So that leaves us with Rabbi Yohanam outside of the gates of Yushalayim prepared to start the process of implementing the next stage of his vision. What happens next is fascinating, somewhat surprising, somewhat not surprising. Please join me next time for another episode on Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. Thank you.